1: Hi, you're listening to a New Books Network podcast. My name is Shraddha Chatterjee, and I'm currently a doctoral candidate and Vanier scholar at York University in Toronto. Today, I have the pleasure of talking to David Murray about his newest edited book titled Living with HIV in Post-Crisis Times, Beyond the Endgame, published by Lexington Press in 2021. David Murray is a professor of anthropology and gender feminist and women's studies at York University. His previous monographs include Real Queer, Sexual Orientation and Gender Identity, Refugees in the Canadian Refugee Apparatus, Flaming Souls, Homosexuality, Homophobia, and Social Change in Barbados, and Opacity, Gender, Sexuality, Race, and the Problem of Identity in Martinique. Dr. Murray has conducted fieldwork in the Caribbean, New Zealand, and Canada examining sexual and gendered minorities and their relations to local, national, and transnational social, political, and economic forces, and is currently engaged in a research project focusing on how people living with HIV-AIDS are navigating the end-of-AIDS discourses in Toronto, Canada, and Bridgetown, Barbados. Thank you so much for coming on the show and speaking to us today, Dr. Murray.
0: Well, thank you for having me. I'm really looking forward to this conversation.
1: Um, I'd like to begin by asking you my first question, which is, could you tell us a little bit about your intellectual journey, especially as it leads up to the framing of this book? In other words, what made you realize this book needed to be written and how does that journey frame the book itself?
0: Right. So um, it's actually been quite a long journey with this book. So the answer is sort of long. Um, just stop me if I'm going on. But it there's a lot that sort of that question makes me think about sort of uh, a lot in terms of how it all came to happen. But I'd say in general, it, the book developed through a combination of um, personal experiences and also questions that sort of come from my training as an anthropologist, and um, it begins, I guess, with sort of my experiences as someone um, living with HIV who uh, was sort of using uh, the services in Toronto, the HIV AIDS organizations. I was a client there, and I volunteered there, and it's been over a decade that I was doing that, And um, and as I sort of... Was a client and, and then volunteered there, I kind of noticed changes that were happening um, at, at these organizations. Like there were changes in the way in which um, uh, HIV was talked about at support group meetings, how it was presented in the educational material, how it, the kind of conversations at conferences. And the other big change I noticed was kind of a change in who was coming through the front door. Like the clientele were changing. It wasn't just sort of um, it was, you know, gay men, but it was also increasingly different gr- uh, kind of ethno-racial groups. Diff- uh, women were coming through. Um, there were people of different sort of socioeconomic statuses and, and ability statuses. So there's a real change there. And the other thing I noticed sort of, again, over the last uh, sort of decade is the way in which HIV was talked about in the kind of public culture or the media which basically was, it wasn't being talked about, um, kind of disappeared, except uh, in the kind of mid-20-teens, there was this flurry of, um, of news coverage, and that was mostly around this kind of claim to the end of AIDS, like the UN AIDS, this super big, you know, uh, global health organization was sending out this message saying, you know, there's a possibility now of ending this, pandemic in the next 10 years and um, you know, we can do it if we keep uh, doing successful sort of prevention and treatment uh, uh, programs. And so I kind of increasingly saw this sort of end of AIDS kind of narrative that was permeating kind of all levels right here in Toronto, like AIDS organizations started to just shape their programs around end of AIDS kinds of um, practices and um there was the uh it's called the Ontario HIV Treatment Network began a campaign called HIV End Game program which was all about these moves to end HIV and that's kind of where my book title comes from but what ha- i started to wonder kind of about the um like the effects what are the effects of of declaring an imminent end to a health crisis and like what how does it affect people whose lives are really directly impacted by that health issue um, that's causing the crisis and like if if your public health system sort of starts to focus mostly on what we need to do to end a pandemic what happens to the people who are still sort of living with the virus that causes the pandemic um, and if we are only focusing on like biomedical interventions like drugs to stop the spread of the disease and um, You know who might be missed and um you know i started to wonder like could the end of crisis narratives actually make the crisis worse for some people while helping others so those are questions that sort of generated my research and and my research was at the beginning focusing on sort of toronto and the toronto organizations communities but i did become increasingly curious about like what's happening in other parts of the world and how it's this end of crisis narratives impacting other um, people living with HIV or what we call PLHIV communities. And um, I was just really curious to find out like, are they facing similar or different challenges to what was happening in Toronto? And if there are different challenges, why? What's the reasons? Um, And I just sort of wanted to know more about like, what does this global pandemic that's now you know, four decades old, Um, you know, were things getting better for PLHIV in different parts of the world? Um, Were they worse? Were they changing? Um, And, you know, why? So those are the questions that kind of led to this call that I put out for um, papers at the American Anthropological Association meetings in 2019. And I was really lucky, I got 12 uh, responses and they're mostly now in this edited volume, and I was really lucky to get proposals that were coming from all different parts of the world. We have chapters that are um, from India, from South Africa, from Japan, Egypt, um, Jamaica, Uganda, Canada. But the other great thing is they have different kind of they're focusing on different issues as well. So like some of the chapters are like looking at more the national healthcare systems and and how they're dealing or helping or not helping PLHIV some are focusing on like the local organizations like in Uganda or in Japan and their relationships with PLHIV and then other chapters are just focusing on like everyday PLHIV lives and like how they're sort of navigating their lives and um the other sort of just lucky coincidence was that the chapters um Focus on different PLHIV populations. So again, there's one chapter that focuses on HIV-positive kids in um, Uganda. Another one that talks a bit about transgender or hijra communities in India. Um, Another one that's looking at like uh, HIV-positive women in a poor urban neighborhood in Jamaica. And then you know another one looking at older gay white men living with HIV in Toronto. So I it really that sort of is. like what really worked for me in terms of getting that kind of coverage. So that's sort of how I got to the, that's a long-winded answer is how I kind of came to be involved in this book.
1: Um, thank you for sharing that with us. And of course, it. I, I'm sure it frames the book also in a specific kind of way that it was first a call for a conference panel and then became a book. And relatedly, what would you say are the central arguments of the book and how are the chapters organized?
0: Yeah, so the book, I mean, you know, from those sort of general questions and interests, um, I was really sort of struck by once we looked at these papers together that they did sort of, I mean, they're, again, very different in their topic and content, but they did sort of, there were about at least three sort of general, kind of insights or arguments emerging from um, the book. And I'd say the first one um, is uh, that, you know, I think what these chapters demonstrate is that at the very least we have to recognize the HIV crisis. The HIV AIDS crisis is not over. Or, nor is it about to end in many parts of the world, and that it actually may be getting worse for um, a number of people and communities in different locations. And that may in part be due to all this kind of end of crisis uh, conversation. And in the concluding chapter, uh, Dr. Adia Benton, who's a renowned medical anthropologist working on HIV AIDS, She talks about how end of AIDS crisis narratives can actually sort of turn into a political tool as much as they are a public health kind of goalpost. And they can actually produce new forms of stigma and discrimination for particular categories of HIV. So that's one kind of finding. The second um, is I think the chapters really show the problems or the complications that come from claiming that HIV is now a chronic illness Um, And this is this big shift that happened in the last 20 years. HIV used to be viewed and understood as a terminal illness because if you had it, most people died. It was extremely serious. And then these medications came along known as ART, antiretroviral therapy, in the late 90s, early 2000s. They really changed the game. And they keep many PLHIV from um, developing severe disease. And they keep many people... Um, a healthy and alive for an almost normal lifespan, and so that's part of what's being—that's a big part of this change towards saying, okay, it's a chronic illness, and you know now we can get towards ending it. But really, these, these authors show that this shift from terminal to chronic doesn't actually translate to a necessary change in the quality of life or the complexity of challenges for PLHIV. Um, and, and, and they really, the chapters, I think, support this other medical anthropologist, um, Thurka Sangaramurthy, who um, has, oh, I think she did her work in S- Sri Lanka, I think. Uh, no, and also in the, in the US. But she says, when we talk about a chronic, HIV as a chronic illness, we really need to think about this, what chronic means. And she wants us to think about chronic as a continual crisis on a broad scale as it's lived and experienced for many around the world. So she's getting us to rethink. And I think these chapters support that idea of hers. And then third, and I think that's the final one I can think of for now, um, that the volume is also challenging um, this claim that once we go from terminal to chronic, people's lives are normalized. People can get back to normal life. And, um, uh, and the reality for many PLHIVs, as volume shows, is there's, there's anything, life is anything but normal, even if you have access to these medications. um, um, You know, there are continue to be economic and political and social inequities um, that um, intersect with an HIV positive status. and, And those contribute to really significant forms of discrimination, or physical or mental health challenges for PLHIV. So I think those are three of the Kinds of, you know, um, overarching contributions you see across the chapters.
1: Um, yeah, and I think the chapters powerfully suggest, um, as a lot of I think uh, queer theory also suggests, that normalization is the problem, um, and you know it it creates the problem in in people's lives in in many ways. But you said a little while ago that when you were volunteering your time at um, different places in Toronto that were helping people with living with HIV AIDS, you saw that there was a different kind of discourse that was shaping around HIV, but also a different clientele that was coming in um, to access those services. And could you talk a little bit about how they might be connected to each other?
0: Um, I'm sorry, the difference between or or the kind of narratives that were circulating about HIV and then the clientele.
1: Yeah. Like, would you think that they are connected, actually, to each other, that the the changing nature of the clientele was shaping a a different discourse or something? Well,
0: I think there was an increasing disconnect between some of the discourses and the clientele coming in, because uh, like at one organization... um, there was a lot of focus on, you know, um, we can end this crisis and here's what we need to do. And they shifted to sort of focusing on certain kinds of um, programs or targets. So one of the ways in which, and I don't, the, the, there's a few mentions of this in the book, but it isn't maybe a central theme. There was this development of what's called the PrEP campaign, which is a, 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 a campaign campaign. To help prevent the spread of HIV by um, uh, people who are at risk taking HIV medications um, on a regular basis before they're HIV positive, and so that these medications have been shown, I think PREP stands for pre-exposure prophylaxis. So, the if you take these medications regularly and um, you know uh, are engaging in sexual activities, they would prevent you from acquiring or being infected with the virus so that's great and so prep was this sort of you know if if we can you know get high risk or vulnerable populations to be taking prep but the problem with that was um that really shifted the focus to a particular group of people you know who are at risk and, and 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 really putting funding and labor and resources into that but then the people who are coming in some of them are people who are living with HIV, and they weren't, they were very different kinds of people. Some of them were, you know, older gay white men, some of them were sort of fairly newly arrived um, immigrants from, let's say, HIV, or countries where HIV is quite, so they were arriving HIV positive from countries like in Africa, some African countries and some South American countries. Some of them are um mothers some of them are really struggling around adjusting to life in Canada and employment issues and these campaigns are all about helping us NHV HIV really weren't addressing those issues and needs of those so the organizations are changing but it's been this kind of you know um disconnect sometimes between what's sort of circulating is what we you know what we, what our official sort of policies are or what we're getting funded for and what actually the needs are.
1: Um, I think that's, that's very illuminating. Um, And definitely in line with a lot of the things that are in the book as well. And the various chapters in the edited volume come together in kind of making a serious and critical intervention by contesting ends of AIDS narratives, as you yourself have just said, and could you speak to us a little bit about the various investments in these narratives? What goals are achieved when we say the AIDS crisis is over or close to being over? And who does this really help?
0: Yeah, that's um, that's a good question. Um, well, I think first I would say, you know, what I think most of us in this book are trying to say is there's nothing wrong with, you know, um, Wanting to see the end of AIDS, of course, everybody wants to see the end of AIDS, right? And 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 also, one of the good things that the the kind of end of AIDS sort of um, campaign has done is really help us recognize like how much has changed, you know, and 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 recognizing really significant achievements, you know, over the forty years in the fight against HIV/AIDS, and a lot of that is really due to the activism and the advocacy of people living with HIV um, really fighting for better access to treatments and better support services, like safe sex campaigns, the, the arrival of ART new knowledge, scientific knowledge about how the virus um, works in the body. Um, There's more anti-discrimination policies. All this is great. Um, And they really have, that's made a difference in the lives of many PLHIV. And, And so, you know, we do now, I think many of us want it. We want that optimistic, like, you know, it's going to end soon. Of course we want that. Um, but when you kind of put all the HIV AIDS kind of program eggs in the end of eggs, in the end of AIDS basket. I don't sure that's not a very good metaphor. But, <laughs> um, um, but when you kind of put everything and, and really d- direct your energies towards this one kind of goal, It does mean that kind of ongoing challenges and issues for people who are living with HIV AIDS get sidelined or deprioritized. So, you know, when we see all this coverage about um, ending AIDS, you don't see much discussion about whether really that's true for people who are living with HIV. And we don't see much, you know, acknowledgement that there's still no way to eliminate the virus once it's in the body. There is no treatment currently that eradicates the virus from the body and 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 the so the end of AIDS narratives aren't really acknowledging the ongoing challenges for those who are living with it and they don't also acknowledge how like different groups of people living with HIV are impacted by HIV in different ways so in some parts of the world you know ART medications they're not available or there's not a steady supply. so people are getting sick and dying from AIDS. Um, in other parts of the world, there are certain communi- there might be clinics that have the medications, but it, you know, certain communities aren't accessing those clinics. Um, and, and they're not getting their medications. and that could be due to a whole variety of issues that are maybe related to education, to distance, to poverty, to gender, and these end of AIDS narratives are, don't take that on board. So kind of all this talk and funding for the end of AIDS initiatives, you know, it ends up working for some communities and those are often in the global north or you know, p- groups who already have access to stable health systems. And it doesn't really apply to other communities um, who are often in the global south and after, often facing like intersecting challenges that are related to kind of multiple insecurities.
1: I mean, yeah, and I, I think a lot of, again, a lot of the chapters do speak to precisely these problems and um, talk about how in different contexts, it's the social, economic and political kind of um, structures that get um, kind of undervalued in these new discourses. Um, and the individual uh, management of HIV AIDS becomes very, very important and um I I think that is kind of my next question, which is that many authors argue that the end of AIDS narratives can emerge when HIV AIDS is kind of insulated as a disease uh, that can be managed by positive living. And this emphasizes the agency of individuals living with HIV AIDS. And um, what gets missed out when, uh, you know, this happens is kind of uh, like serious attention to things like geography, race, class, Differentiated access to HIV/AIDS drugs um, and treatment, and how does this actually harm the reduction of HIV/AIDS? You think?
0: Yeah, no, that's a good observation. I would say that's another kind of theme that's sort of running throughout the book is, um, you know, with the arrival of these these ART um, therapies and and um, um, You know, with the change in health status from terminal to chronic, you have seen this sort of emergence again over the last 20 years of what are called positive living programs. And there's um, quite a bit of research on them. And the authors do. Yeah, you're right. They talk about them in a number of their chapters. And, you know, these positive living programs, again, they have good intentions. They're about helping people who are living with HIV to sort of mentally and emotionally cope with, you know, living with this virus and and really help them return to kind of their everyday so-called normal lives after the diagnosis, and 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 so positive living programs have these two meanings: it's programs for positive people, but it's also about helping people live your life with a kind of optimistic, you know, positive mental orientation. And so that's great. But but yeah, what you are noting is how the authors, quite a few of them. Um, talk about how that can also be a way of offloading the responsibility of being HIV positive entirely onto the patient. There there are these very individualized sort of therapeutic frameworks. And, um, you you know, one of the sort of uh, unintended outcomes can be that people who who are being trained around sort of uh, a kind of positive um, living framework end up feeling responsible, uh, entirely responsible for their own health and for preventing the transmission of the virus. And so, um, you know, if you're entire, if you're made to feel that your health is your entirely your own responsibility, if something goes wrong, or if you become depressed, or you're facing other challenges, then it makes it feel like or seem like you're the one who's responsible for fixing things, and so the other thing, which is back to a point I've made earlier, is that positive living programs, um, they don't often engage with the bigger structural prog- sort of pro- problems that you were pointing out, like you know how there's bigger problems that can be contributing to unhealthy or risky and risky environments. Like, well, you've mentioned some of them, but you know, ongoing you know, unemployment or unsafe working conditions, poorly paid work, criminalization of certain kinds of work, gender violence, trans homophobic violence, racial discrimination, like all of those are larger structural problems that often, you know, aren't really being talked about in a positive living program. So that is one of the, yeah, that's definitely something that's raised by quite a few of the authors.
1: Um. Yeah, and your response kind of uh, makes me think about Weber's Saria's chapter, but also Weber's book uh, that came out earlier this year, which is Hijra's Lovers, Brothers*. Where I think one of the central questions that Weber was asking is um, around this idea that the trans people that Weber was working with are very aware of what HIV is and how it spread and what it does. But at the same time, they are not having safe sex. Um, and, and you know, the question is precisely this, that, you know, even like despite this awareness, what is it that still allows for this kind of behavior to continue? And um, to make it very clear, I mean, of course, Weber was not asking this question from a stigmatizing perspective. It, Weber was genuinely curious about the social and the political conditions around which even in fact to some extent the psychic conditions around which HIV AIDS is not seen as something that um, should necessarily be prevented you know like what leads life to that point where you don't and, and I think again this kind of individualizing narrative that happens around the end of AIDS um, or this idea that it is a chronic disease and you can live with it through like a balanced lifestyle or whatever um, kind of actually really discounts the the really like prevalent conditions of oppression or marginalization yeah. or stigma or poverty or precariousness that kind of do not make HIV AIDS a threat in the way that it would be a threat in other lives that are not marked by. Stigma or precarity.
0: Yeah, Dr. Saria's um, um, chapter in, in, in their book is is, um, is is really important in 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 exactly sh- sort of showing what you what you're saying. Um, that point about you know, which many people would sort of not it doesn't make sense at first when you hear that. It's like okay, here's a group of people who know that some of their activities are risky, they know what HIV is, they know about, you know, its um, effect. Y- you know, they also know there are medications, not that they're always available or easy to access. And so why do they continue to, you know, engage in sometimes risky behaviors? And 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 really powerfully, Dr. Saria shows how, you know, when you're in a community that is so marginalized or whose lives are so sort of, unvalued or devalued in the wider kind of community or society that they live then you know hiv is just sort of i mean they're not they're not saying that it's they know that it's risky but it's also just one more risk in already risky lives that you know don't seem to matter much to outsiders and so um uh and you know some of dr sarah's interviews are really illuminating with um and 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 really uh, you know, um, troubling, but but he, but, but they really explain. You know, why some people say, "Look, if I get it, I, I I choose not to access medications," and that's because you know the the how my life is valued in this city or place that I live makes it actually a choice to withdraw from life, and and you know they it's a much more complicated explanation, but it's a really illuminating way. and it shows the power of you know, um, it's not HIV necessarily, It's it can be, you know, your gender or your caste or class status, those can really contribute to the kinds of um, f- forms of erasure and violence that, that can lead to those kinds of decisions, yeah.
1: Yeah, and in, in some ways it's like, it's this internalization of one's own disposability Yeah. that allows these conditions to happen and i think this is this is an aside but um there was this big discourse around why um lower income communities in india are not following social distancing protocols in the pandemic oh. and i found that to be such a tone deaf kind of discourse because you know one you can't possibly social social distance but at the same time if you're dependent on your like on daily wages to run your household or if you are already surrounded by illnesses that are quite serious and that are ignored by public health um, systems and schemes then COVID is not actually the biggest thing that happens to you so um, I and I think it's it's that you also uh, somehow I feel like these positive living discourses that you talk about and that other authors talk about in the book kind of assume that uh, there is a quality of life or a, or a value for life that is somehow going to be the same and uniform across the board but that is not the case and the authors do show that repeatedly um, throughout the chapters
0: yeah yeah absolutely it's that's really interesting that parallel between the some of the yeah the covid sort of um Claims for safety and protection, and and the HIV ones, and you know, it's also it makes me think of how that other um, um, kind of challenge or, or or problem with those is, you know, not well. It's what you're saying, not recognizing the actual living conditions that these people are in. So, you know, for again, as Sarah shows and other researchers have shown, you know, in some of these. Communities, you know, you could be told that well, um, safe sex will, you know, uh, work to prevent. But some of them don't have a choice, right? I mean, some of them are in uh, lines of work, or you know, in terms of affordability of uh, the the protection that you need, or how to access out of the clinics to get the kind of protection you need. All those are not options in those communities. I mean, this is, you know. in some places, there's very few options for you know for getting by for surviving. So choices are made within those limited options, and and the healthcare systems, off, you know don't recognize that or are very quick to blame those communities for just being you know um, ignorant or you know not caring or something like that. And uh, I think you're right. I think in the COVID climate, um, you know uh, there's uh, this sort of often implicit, like why, or, or not questioning of like, oh, these people who are getting infected just, you know, aren't being careful, but it's not recognizing that some of them are in environments that are already pretty um, dangerous and they can't do much. I mean, there's very little they can do, or they don't have as many choices. So those are, yeah, it's been something, I mean, that we could probably have a whole podcast and this is the parallels or the differences between the HIV. I, I was going to come back to that in a few minutes, but anyways, yeah, it's a super interesting um, um
1: <laughs> Yeah, and I think specifically now let's let's talk about your chapter, which is titled mm. Opting Out, Aging Gays HIV AIDS and the Biopolitics of Queer Viral Time. And in your chapter you kind of discuss homo time and queer viral time. Can you say something more about these conceptual frames and also how is temporality queered through the focus on HIV AIDS?
0: Yeah, so my chapter is um, focusing on this sort of group of older um, gay uh, uh, white men in Toronto who um, have all been living with HIV for decades. They're long-term survivors. And, and what they had done, and, and I was introduced to them, they sort of formed an independent um, support group. And it's not affiliated with any organization, any service in Toronto. And they did that on purpose. And they're actually very critical of most of Toronto's um, HIV, AIDS services and organizations. They feel, that's kind of what we were talking about before, they feel that the organizations are really only interested in the kind of end of AIDS sort of projects. And they're really too focused in just relying on sort of pharmaceutical companies and their drugs as the way to solve this problem or they think and they find that these organizations are just really now targeting or talking to sort of young gay men or conversely seem to be only interested in sort of new immigrant HIV positive communities. So they kind of feel like they've been forgotten in the kind of current conversations and yet they were the group, you know, who was most initially impacted in the beginning 30, 40 years ago, and that really pisses them off quite a bit. So they're pretty frustrated and they really come to rely on each other for support and how to manage these challenges. And so what I argue in the chapter is that, that critique of the sort of contemporary HIV AIDS sort of landscape in Toronto, it's a critique also of the sort of dominant narrative of HIV AIDS that circulates in the queer community and in the sort of larger media, and and you know that narrative saying AIDS was a problem, big problem in the past. We've responded to it. Things are getting better, and now we're on our way to end it. We're on our way to end it. That's the that's the narrative, and I call that sort of the homonormative AIDS narrative, or also you could call it hegemonic queer vital time because that's the sort of powerful story that we hear. But that group, that perspective. Um, introduces a kind of different timeline and a different storyline and and it's not moving in the same direction and it's not moving towards an end they're still seeing this as a crisis um, it's still very much a part of their everyday lives so so they're working with a different timeline that's to, to me was really interesting and they, they kind of remind us I think that you know queer communities who often get positioned as, Marginal, but they within those communities can be silencing or ignoring some of their own members who are facing challenges. You know, in this case, due to their health status. So, yeah, that's sort of what um, kind of emerged in my chapter.
1: Yeah, um, I also read specifically these concepts in your chapter, or the the question of temporality in your chapter as. Speaking to the question of temporality within larger reflections on what crisis is, and usually um usually like crisis will be understood as this big event that happens and then um there's like a pre crisis and that time and then there is a crisis that happens and then there is a post crisis time but then the chap- the chapter that you write actually demonstrates very well that in some ways in many lives, the crises are kind of interminable and they are ongoing and they are overlapping. So this idea that crisis is an event actually doesn't fit very well with these narratives um, precisely because uh, uh, imagining crisis as an event also takes away from the fact that crisis can be the crisis of everyday life. Yes,
0: yes, yes, yes. No, uh, um, I think it's increasingly, it's been a bit of a trend in medical anthropology um, around HIV um, and a little more broadly in the last few years to think about that issue that you're raising, like the sort of issues of time, particularly in relation to public health interventions and specifically around that idea of, of a public health crisis. And it's very much what you've just said that you know crisis in public health infrastructures it's kind of built around a set of assumptions, just as as you as you kind of as you out, outline them. But the problem is, um, um, yeah, especially as we well, I'm interested in it, when you move to the end point of that arc, the crisis is over, the crisis is contained. I think what is being uh, the not just me, many are drawing attention to is you know who gets sort of. Um, displaced by that end and like who's, um, you know, really, who is the crisis ending for, but who might it continue for? And even again, as a number of people have pointed out, like uh, Dr. Benton, like how does that narrative itself actually maybe intensify a crisis for other people? And the other really interesting dimension is, and this might be quite specific to HIV, but it may end up being relevant to other health crises like the current COVID one, is when you have a, 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 an illness or a health issue that gets defined as chronic, well, how do you bring chronic and crisis together? And chronic implies this long-term, every day, and crisis is this sort of like intense um, kind of movement into intensity and then de-intensifying. And so there can be a, really, a real misalignment or a real disconnect between the crisis narrative and the and you know the people who get kind of framed as dealing with living with something that's chronic and and I think what you're suggesting is like maybe crisis needs to be kind of turned in like we need to recognize the chronicity of crisis. Um, and that really shifts I think yeah, a lot of the kind of popular popular assumptions about like you know working with that term as a way to understand in this case health um, health issues yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think, and and I think that is what is very um, exciting about all the chapters that they push us to think about these things in very different ways, and also very interestingly in different contexts across the globe. So, um, I, I I think like a careful attention to these things is specifically something that is wanting, and the book does that very well. Um, And I think in in some ways, both Robert Lorway and Adia Benton, whose conclusions frame all the chapters of your book, ask us to think about how living with HIV AIDS can help us imagine new ways of collectivizing and building community, which I found to be particularly exciting. And how does critically, so my question is, how does critically intervening in end of AIDS narratives open up these possibilities?
0: Yeah, um, yeah, I think I agree that those concluding chapters by Rob and Adia, they're pointing both towards um, sort of new directions in HIV research and activism, and particularly, as you say, in relation to building community. Uh, and, and 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 thinking about how to address new and ongoing sort of challenges related to HIV, and like in Rob's chapter, um, he highlights um, uh, Jalecia Jolly's um, uh, chapter, which her chapter is the one that focuses on an organization in Jamaica that's created by and for Jamaican women in in a pretty poor neighborhood who are HIV positive. And, and, and this organization really emphasizes the kind of sex positive approach to talking about HIV and health. And it really supports these women in teaching them skills um, and, and building confidence in how to speak out about public health issues or policies that are often overlooking or misrepresenting them. And, and um, Rob also actually sees hope in the group that I worked with um, in these older HIV positive gay white men, because you know, the fact that they're refusing to kind of accept these mainstream narratives of AIDS uh, and remind us that, like, the current interventions may not be enough are ways in which, you know, you can see grassroots activism and organization, you know, that's maybe outside the sort of mainstream public health sort of systems can be the place in which, you know, we may see new forms of, um uh, new formations that, you know, are really going to help people who are living with HIV and address those challenges we've talked about. And then Adia's, um, she puts forward a little bit of a different challenge in her chapter, which I thought was, and she's, her, her book actually um, um, also works with this theme. And she's saying, maybe the problem is, um the the problem is talking about HIV as an exceptional disease that it is demanding like these exceptional interventions, and she's kind of suggesting, and she's not alone, that you know all this kind of time and money and, and 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 labor that's gone into creating specific HIV interventions and programs and responses, and you know in parts of the world that's huge parts of you know state budgets. Um, maybe that can be better directed towards uh, addressing some of those larger structural inequities that are really um, just as important or maybe more important that are contributing to the poor health or risky behaviors or, uh, you know, of many communities and regions around the globe. So that's a really interesting and provocative kind of, um, uh, you know, challenge that she puts forward.
1: Yeah, thank you for sharing that. And I think the um, the conclusions also help us really uh, pull the book into many directions um, and all of them all of them like very exciting to me as a reader so I really enjoyed reading specifically those chapters and and um, juxtaposing them with some of the ones in the book actually um, and in many ways I think the book also does this very interesting thing where um it stays very attuned to the specificities of the HIV AIDS crisis, but then a lot of the questions that the book is asking actually pull us out of that crisis and help us think about many other questions that frame, I guess, the social sciences or life in general. So I think that's very exciting as well.
0: Yeah, it's um, interesting. Um, and it does get back to what we've now referenced a couple of times, which is, you know, um, You know, what the book doesn't say much about, as you kind of note, like it opens up some of the uh, issues and challenges, a few of the assumptions, uh, you know, around the HIV AIDS response. But in those concluding chapters, we start to see how this could also lead us to ask questions about other um, health kind of uh, questions around health, but also even more broadly, as you kind of indicated, like questions about Ideas of crisis and stuff, and and it's we've all talked about this as we as we kind of um, all the contributors, and it was actually a bit of a challenge at one point. You know, this book was in process, like it was getting edited and copy edited and revised as the COVID pandemic hit, and so at one point we were like, "There's so much in this that really could." Be connecting to the COVID, um, but that's a pretty significant um, challenge and revision to almost every one of the chapters. So we kind of stuck with okay, let's get this out, and and it's focusing really on HIV. But really, it is in so many ways the kind of next. Uh, well, it could become a whole another conversation. Is you know uh, what do we learn from this book that may inform and also you know may help us recognize that. That you know this one pandemic HIV, which is now about to begin its fifth decade, so fifty years of, of of this particular health crisis, uh, how you know how can it help us to understand the way we're dealing with COVID? But also really importantly, what are the differences? Like we don't want to just make assumptions about that these are parallel pandemics too. So that is you know um, I'd say one of the kind of openings, and I would put it out there. And I'm sure, in fact, I'm starting to see already, you know, um, conversations that are happening about that. And I'm hoping we will see some journals or books or, you know, public uh, interventions, or, you know, that are really making those comparisons.
1: Yeah, and I think my next question was precisely around this, which is, what are some of the provocations that you would like to leave your readers with? And, you know, what are some of the projects that you yourself are excited to work on in the future?
0: Well, I guess you're, you know, that's one of them. Like, the, I mean, I am very increasingly kind of curious and, and wanting to think through a little more, you know, what we see in this volume and the kinds of critiques and suggestions and thinking about their applicability to what's going on right now as we kind of move into, a, I don't know, and middle-early phase or early-middle phase of of COVID, and again, we all want the end of COVID narrative, but it doesn't look like that's happening immediately, but, you know, I think that is the question I'm asking myself, you know, what can the global HIV response teach us about the global COVID-19 response? And if we compare them, you know, what similarities and differences do we see? And, and, you know, how might these comparisons help us plan for future health crises? So that is for sure one of them. And the other is a provocation or, you know, hope of mine from my own work and, uh, and for others is, is, is more specifically with HIV. It's like, um, you know, um, uh, if, you know, the crisis isn't ending for some communities, then why is that? And what do we need to do to really work towards ending the crisis? And how do we sort of reframe maybe our approaches that to trying to mitigate or control or eradicate HIV AIDS? So we're not just focusing on the biomedical. So we're not just talking about like getting, you know, medications and drugs into people, which is super important, but clearly not the only issue at hand. And I think that's in the chapters. Are telling us so. So yeah, how do we how do we start addressing some of those bigger infrastructural issues and in, inequities?
1: Yeah, I think that was that was fantastic, and um, again, truly some of the things that the book does leave us with. Um, for our listeners, I'd like to quote some lines from the book to end this interview. And I quote: All of the chapters underscore the well-established but still under-acknowledged argument that the HIV-AIDS response cannot be organized solely through biomedical, data-driven interventions, intersecting political, economic, and social structures of inequality operate on multiple scales, local, regional, and global, and impact all dimensions of the HIV-AIDS response, from identifying at-risk populations, to addressing stigma and discrimination, to developing effective treatment protocols, end quote. In many ways, I think this is essential reading for anybody working on HIV, AIDS, public health, um, queer life and living, you know, biopolitics, all of those things. And living with HIV in post-crisis times is now available in bookstores and online. Thank you for talking to us today, Dr. Murray.
0: Thank you very much. It was a great interview. Thanks, Shraddha.
1: Thank you.